according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs chapter 8, and uh, today we're going to start with Proverbs 8, 22. Proverbs 8, 22, I think. Because I believe we did 2D, 1 and 2, last week. Am I correct? Do we have notes from last week? Yes. Okay. Well, good. I will open us up in prayer, and then we'll find where we left off, and we'll, uh, we'll proceed from there. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this morning, for the blessings we have to study to show ourselves approved. Father, I just so rejoice that... Uh, Day by day, moment by moment, Father, you watch over us, you lead us, you guide us. When we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. We call upon your faithfulness once again to bless our time in your truth, to open the eyes of our understanding, in particular, Father, as we are dealing with um, some concepts and some ideas that uh, are in some ways kind of tough to think about. So broaden our capacity, open our eyes even wider, Father, so that we might see completely all that you have to reveal. I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let's see. I know we covered one, A, B, and C, and two, A, B, C, and D. Stop me if we didn't. I remember doing those. I remember doing that. Temporal intimacy with the Word results in internal reward, and we spent a ton of time on one and two. I know that we were really locking in the ability to look at this passage in two different ways and to consider what does it mean when it says, by me, kings reign, in verse 15. By me, kings reign. Because if we're not careful, that verse can make us mad. If we're not careful, we'll look at a verse and say, well, that's a lie. I I know a lot of kings that don't reign by the wisdom of God. Uh, I know a lot of kings that are reigning by the wisdom of Satan. They're reigning by the, the wisdom of man. They, uh, they hate the wisdom of God. They're not using the wisdom of God in their reign. All right? And so they view this verse very negatively or very um, uh, as being wrong or inaccurate or, or a lie. And, and because they've insisted upon some hermeneutical choices, they've made some interpretive dis, uh, choices in how they're, they're viewing that verse, that they're, they're viewing it entirely temporally, that they're viewing it uh, absolutely, and that they're viewing it uh, as an instrumental use in the present time, all right? And perhaps uh, those are all interpretive decisions that are not valid interpretive decisions, because having made those interpretive decisions, you end up at a clearly uh, inconsistent destination. You, in other words, you find that, yeah, there's not every king does reign by the wisdom of God. So maybe that's not what it's talking about. All right. Maybe we need to look at the passage eternally. Maybe we need to take a look at the passage, um, not in terms of, uh, the content of the word of God wisdom, but by the person of the word of God wisdom, that is God, the son himself, that Jesus Christ himself is the one that sovereignly controls human history. And there, if we do interpret it that way and view it in that, in that uh, sense, then we find that that sense has a lot of agreement with a whole lot of other scriptures. Yes, the wisdom of God maintains a sovereign rule through human kings. And if that's the sense for what's being said here, then we have a lot of passages of scripture that agree with that. 
uh, because it is the wisdom of God who maintains a sovereign rule through human kings. Daniel 2.21, Daniel 4, Daniel 5, Acts 17, Romans 13. It is undeniable. If there is a government in authority, that government is in authority because Jesus Christ put them there. There is no authority except from God. Those which exist are established by God. And so, um, in fact, I, I made some folks mad this last week talking about authority and governmental authority and those which exist, all right? Because there's, there's folks that have an interpretation of the scriptures that allows them to be in subjection to godly government, but to be in rebellion against ungodly government. And, uh, and they, they, they take Romans 13 in ways that I'm not comfortable taking, all right? Because uh, they, they, they put adjectives in the text that aren't in the text, such as godly and ungodly, all right? When it doesn't say be in subjection to the godly government. Uh, it says be in subjection to the ruling authorities, to the government that is in power. And, uh, and if it exists, it's, it, it, uh, it exists from God. So, and I don't want to misquote this, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but if you're not familiar with Romans 13, I would just encourage you, uh, we got a bunch of classes on the website there in Romans 13, and you can grab those. Am I done? Oh, okay. Oh, this is for me? Oh, well, thank you. Oh, okay. Thank you, thank you. I thought... Uh, I thought a relief pitcher was coming in, and I was... Uh, the coach had yanked me. Call for the lefty. Actually, that used to be a common practice. Uh, Spurgeon used to do that with his father and with his grandfather. He'd be partway through a sermon and, and uh, the grandfather would raise his hand and he'd walk up to the podium and tell young Charles that, uh, that he, could, he could do this verse better and Charles would go have a seat and uh, the grandpa would teach that verse and then they'd get to the next verse and Charles would stand back up and get back in the pulpit and tell grandpa, I can, I'll do this verse better and things like that. All right. Anyway, I, we were discussing Romans 13 here and it says in verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to... And now notice, if, if, if you can see it in there, show me, but where does it draw a distinction between the godly governments and the ungodly governments, right? Now, I think a lot of people go down to verse 3 and 4 where we have an illustration, where we have an explanation being given for the command, and they, they see, well, here's the purpose of government, here's why God crafted the institution the way that he did, to reward good behavior and to punish bad behavior and to bear the sword. And it is a deacon of God to, uh, for good and a minister of God to you for good in verse 4. And so and there's an explanation in verses 3 and 4 for why Christians ought to appreciate God's wisdom in establishing government. But that illustration does not change the imperative in verses 1 and 2. Uh, verses 1 and 2 don't tell us to be in subjection to good authority and to be in defiance of bad authority. It says to be in subjection to authority. And in fact, the only adjective to authority that's, that's there in verse 1 is governing. All right? Governing. And then the, um, those which exist, in, also in verse 1, there is no authority except from God. Those which exist are established by God. So this, uh, this government that you say God didn't give us doesn't exist and the government that does exist is the government god gave us and he might have given it to us for our discipline he might have given it to us to to humble us and uh, but whatever the case he gave it to us and we are not to defy god 
for the government that he gave us. And uh, we ought to just throw ourselves on God's mercy and ask him to, uh, to uh, give us a, a better government than the one we have now. But that's his good pleasure. And like David, we better wait for God to remove Saul. We're not going to take matters in our own hands and kill Saul ourselves. See, we might be tempted. <laughs> I might, uh, I might, my humanity might really struggle. I don't know that I would have passed the Kenneth Tate, the Kenneth Tate elevator test um, had it been me instead of Kenneth Tate. But um, that's just my humanity speaking. All right? You don't know who I'm talking about? Well, I am really off topic here this morning. Let me get back to my slide. All right. Um, Kenneth Tate was a security guard of the Center for Disease Control. And he was escorting President Obama on a tour of the Center for Disease Control. And they were in an elevator together, along with some Secret Service agents and whatever. And nobody knew that Kenneth Tate was armed, that he had a, a firearm. And it came out later that he was riding the elevator with the president and he had a weapon. And it was very embarrassing, and so uh, he got fired, actually. He got fired from the Centers for Disease Control simply because he embarrassed the Secret Service. Uh, and he rode an elevator with the president. See, so, And he was an Obama supporter. He's from Chicago. He voted for him twice. He loved the president. But uh, he embarrassed the Secret Service, so he got fired in, uh, in that. All right. Boy, that's a side trip. The point is, we were dealing with issues of authority, and there is no authority. If it exists, God put it there. That's the point. God, that God put it there. So that, that's our president's authority. That's our governor's authority. That's our mayor's authority. That's our precinct uh, committee chairman authority. All right? We have a county uh, precinct chair. Um, whatever it is, if there is an authority over you, God put it there. If it exists, does it exist? All right. And then clearly, <laughs> for folks who want to resist authority, uh, I've yet to find one that was resisting authority that didn't exist. They're all, they're all resisting existent authority. See? And so whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. See? Anyway, so there's... There's issues there. And that is what happens when we look at Proverbs 8 temporarily. That is when we look at it within the context of time. So in the sense of present time, by me king's reign, Proverbs 8.15, by me king's reign, if we look at it in the sense of time, means by the personal sovereignty of Jesus Christ who controls history, because he's wisdom, king's reign. But then we go back and we look at this eternally rather than temporally. And let's view this passage in a second sense, okay? And let's make our interpretation decision, a, a hermeneutical decision that we're going to view these expressions and consider that, you know, they're not really talking about time anyway. Because uh, we find that it's um, enduring wealth and righteousness. Enduring wealth, not the wealth that passes away. Not the wealth that, uh, that thieves break in and steal, or not the wealth of this earth. That doesn't endure. Enduring wealth is, is eternal reward. Eternal wealth, or enduring wealth, is, uh, is heavenly and, and eternal. And then we find terms like fruit and yield in verse 19. Well, when do you realize your yield? When does an investment uh, mature? When is the yield realized in any kind of uh, savings or investment? And then we have endowment in verse 21. 
to endow those who love me with wealth. Well, when is an endowment granted? If there is an endowment that has been set up for somebody, well, when is that endowment realized? When is that endowment manifested? And then it says that I may fill their treasuries. When are the treasuries filled by God in, uh, in different things? When are the rewards bestowed? And as we understand it in judgments and viewpoints, and we do our studies there, we realize God cannot pour into our treasuries until our life is complete. It is given unto man once to die, after that the judgment. Why would I, I don't want God to fill my treasury now, because I expect that there's, there's still years of service in front of me, all right, unless the trumpet sounds right now or he strikes me dead, then he can fill my treasury now. But the idea of filling my treasuries, that's, that happens when I leave mortality. That happens when I leave time, when I cr- cross that threshold from uh, mortality to immortality. And so I think all of the expressions here from 15 down to 21 really point more to an eternal sense than to a temporal sense. And, and so here too, by me, King's reign tells you that God himself, Jesus Christ, is going to assign the, the, uh, the rulers in the millennial kingdom, the rulers in the new heavens and new earth, they're going to be assigned based on rewards. You know, good and faithful servant, you will rule over 10 cities. You will rule over five cities. You will rule over one city. You will rule over a, a neighborhood. You will rule over a phone booth or something, Right. Um, that by me king's reign should be viewed eternally in in those applications. All right. All of that's a side trip. Let's go back now to main point three. Did we get this far last week? I teased you with it last week. No. All right, new material there. Let's look at verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. From everlasting, I was established. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. Now, for all of this, though, who are we talking about? We're talking about me. We're talking about I. We're talking about the first person speaker throughout this chapter. This is wisdom. Go back to verse 12 and you see, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. Okay, And even prior to that, there's I, 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 I. Verse uh, 1, does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice on the uh, top of the heights beside the way where the paths meet? She takes her stand. She cries out. But then starting in verse 4, to you, O man, I call. So after three verses of third person introduction to wisdom, now wisdom starts speaking in the first person in verse 4. To you, O man, I call. My voice. Um, I will speak. My lips, my mouth, my lips, my mouth, um, my instruction. Okay? And then verse 12, I wisdom, I find, I hate, mine, I am, mine, by me, by me, I love. Uh, Diligently seek me, will find me. Riches and honor are with me. Oh, by the way, that's another term that points towards an eternal fulfillment, not a temporal fulfillment. Because it's the riches and honor that are presently located with Jesus Christ, not on this earth. My fruit, my yield, I walk. I may fill their treasuries. So we've got a complete chapter here where virtually everything is being spoken, after verse 3, in the the first person. This is wisdom speaking. 
And we know that this is Jesus Christ speaking. This is God the Son speaking. He's called wisdom here. He's called logos in John chapter 1. We're going to see the relationship of that text here today. So in verse 22, the Lord, Yahweh, possessed me. Yahweh possessed me. And sometimes Yahweh is the Lord, Jesus Christ, God the Son. Sometimes Yahweh is God the Father. All right. Sometimes Yahweh is the Father and the Son in their unity. I and the Father are one, we're told. All right. And so, depending on what passage in the Old Testament you're dealing with, when you come across Yahweh, it's useful to say, is this the Son? Is this the Father? Is this the Father and the Son in, his, in their unity? All right. I have yet to find a Yahweh use that was purely Holy Spirit. All right. I think if there is a Spirit reference, it is always the spirit of Yahweh, okay? But in any event. So we have passages where Yahweh is the Son. We have passages where Yahweh is the Father. I think the clue here is, since we know that wisdom is the Son, then Yahweh is going to be the Father, all right? Because there's one that is begetting, and there's one that is being begotten, okay? The begetter and the begat, or the begetter and the begotten one. So that's what we have described here. There is a birth that this passage describes, beginning and begotten. And uh, the, the beautiful interaction here between the Father and the Son. So the Lord possessed me, acquired me, birthed me, begat me. In fact, begat is a perfectly fine translation for the verb. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was woven and I'm going to show you that verb this morning as well. I think it's better than established. From everlasting I was woven from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was birthed. I was brought forth. Okay? I was writhed in anguish and birthing is a childbirth term. I was birthed or brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills... I was birthed. I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields or the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. God the Son, of course, was with God the Father. We know that. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. So what we're very familiar with in the Gospel of John as a great theological introduction to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, it goes back to the beginning even prior to the Genesis 1-1 beginning. All right? In the eternity past of God himself was a father-son relationship with the beginning of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to try to wrap our minds around here this morning. All right? So I was there. And it's in the first person. When John writes in John 1.1, 1, 1, it's in the third person. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All right, that's in the third person, the Apostle John describing the Word. But here it's in the first person. I was there. I was there. When he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundaries so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, I was there. Not only was I there, but I was working with him. I was beside him as a master workman. That God was doing all these things, but he was doing all these things by delegated authority. 
that he was commanding these things, expressing his will in these things, but it was the Son that was making it happen. All right? Then God said, let there be light. Then God the Father said, let there be light. And God the Son made light. And there was light. Okay? The uh, architect and the workman, hand in hand, bringing about creation. And I was daily his delight. Daily. Day one, day two, day three. All the way to day six. Then they rested on day seven. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, playing always before him, playing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. All right, so this is what we've got to cover. 22 through 31, it is a powerful text. It is the most detailed passage in all the Bible concerning the beginning of the begotten Son. It is the most detailed text. And I think it's largely ignored because cults do scary things with this text. Uh, Non-Christian religions try to defend a a goddess, a, a wisdom goddess, out of this text. They want to find a female goddess in the Bible. And so this is where they, they go to, all right? Um, this is not some God the mother. This is not some goddess, okay? Uh, there's a father, there's a son. There is no God the mother. That bothers some feminist activists. But we have the, uh, the reality of a father and a begotten son. And that's what the Bible describes. And that's what this text describes. So, understand that, uh, let's start with an easier passage maybe. Psalm 2.7, Today I have begotten you. So sub-point A, join me in Psalm 2. Today I have begotten you. Has three New Testament allusions and three New Testament quotations. Must be pretty important then, huh? (laughs) If there's three allusions and three quotations, then the New Testament uses Psalm 2 at least six different times and probably more. Because in concepts, the only begotten shows up in a lot of places. Today I have begotten you has three New Testament allusions and three New Testament quotations, but never fixes what day is today in the context. Never tells you what day is today. You ever wonder about that? All right. Almost none of the commentaries even ask the question. And those that ask the question... um, Get it wrong, (laughs) all right? Because they're pointing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the citation here and the fulfillment. And and they they view the resurrection of Christ on Sunday, April 5th, uh, 33 AD, as the day these words are spoken. But how is Easter Sunday of 33 AD the day that the Father begat the Son? He was a begotten Son long prior to that. The voice thundered out of heaven, Behold my Son in whom I'm well pleased. That happened at the baptism. All right, Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? That verse gives us no help at all in setting a context because when have the nations not been in an uproar? (laughs) When has humanity not devised vain things? They've always devised vain, vain things. Nations have been devising vain things since there's been nations. You know, from the Tower of Babel onward, the nations have been doing what they're doing. The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers take counsel together. Well, when have they not done that? They're doing that today. They do that all the time. 
Kings always come up with these plans. In fact, motivated by Satan, they've got all kinds of dreams and goals and objectives in terms of what the United Nations wants to do, or before that, what the League of Nations wanted to do, or before that, what the Congress of Vienna wanted to do, or before that, before that, before that, before that. There's never been a shortage of um, schemes. And there's schemes today. Generally, they hate Israel and they hate the United States. <laughs> all right. But this one is interesting. They take their stand against Yahweh and against his anointed. Now again, I think in context, we can view this as the Father and the Son. In this case, Yahweh references God the Father and his anointed is his Son. And we're told that. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So the biggest objective of this whole conspiracy has one point. They want to remove the bonds that they're under. They don't want Yahweh and his Son ruling over them. Now, when was that ever possible? Even in his first advent, Jesus Christ didn't take his seat on a throne. Even in first advent, when when God walked this earth, he did not subject earthly governments under his earthly throne of David. This doesn't actually happen until the millennium. This doesn't actually happen until Jesus Christ is seated on David's throne, and then all the Gentile nations start to hate the fact that they're subject to the son of David on the throne of David. Now there may be some foreshadowing of that today. There may be some grumbling. You know, kings today don't like the sovereignty of God or they don't want biblical principles in view or or what have you. But the literal fulfillment of this is not possible until Jesus is on his throne. They're not under fetters until then. In fact, Gentile nations today are very unfettered having been given over to the God of this world. All right. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. There is, uh, you know, uh, well, people, there are folks who don't have a sense of humor to appreciate sarcasm. I get that. They, they, they um, exist. Okay. They have a sense of humor that doesn't like mocking. I get that. Those kind of people uh, exist. And, and um, they, they, because of that, they get very irritated when other people employ sarcasm or when other people employ mocking, and they, they, just, they don't like it. And they don't like it because it doesn't resonate with what they do like, and it doesn't resonate with their personality, or it doesn't resonate with whatever. And so then, because they don't like it, they say, well, it's not Christian. You don't love if you mock somebody. Well, God is love, and God mocks. All right, And there's a place for that. Jesus mocks. Jesus ridiculed the Pharisees a bunch of different times. I even spent an afternoon a few months ago. Um, I, I found, I think, 39-something passages where Jesus was mocking and ridiculing. He, he asked the Pharisees, he says, Have you not read? You know, you know how insulting that is to people that spend all day, every day, reading? Have you not read? You know, you ever think about what this means? You know? Don't you, haven't you ever read this passage? Did you know the book of Hosea is in your Bible? I mean, it is, it is, it is highly insulting to the Pharisees and the people he was speaking to. Very sarcastic, very mocking. And, um, and, and they took it that way. <laughs> they knew what he was saying. Some other people came along and said, ooh, did you know the Pharisees were offended when you said that? <laughs> uh, yeah, I knew that's why I said it. And then he says something even worse beyond that. 
okay? They get all up in arms because they have to eat his flesh. And he says, oh, that's a problem? All right, well, now you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Anyway, so there's a, there's a, a style or a method of communication whereby, even in sarcasm, when the irony of, of rebellion is just as blunt as you could expect, God employs it, and he uses it, I think, in a sanctified way. So he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, how dare you rebel, right? Because as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So here's our context for Psalm 2. Jesus Christ is seated on the throne of David. This is post-second advent. He's returned to the earth. He has taken his seat. He is reigning. And the Gentiles don't like it. The Gentiles are grumbling. Gnashing their teeth and complaining. Creating schemes. Creating schemes. All right? Now, then we get to verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Now, obviously, we have a, um, we've switched now from the third person to the first person. I think it's fair to ask, who is the I? Is this David in 1000 BC? Is this Jesus on the throne of David? Is this uh, Jesus in eternity past? Uh, it's, it's, clearly, it's a prophetic shift, and we need to answer the question, well, who is the speaker? And when is he saying this? I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. All right, so I think we can answer it's not David, it's Jesus Christ. Okay. But is he saying this on his throne or is he saying this before the foundation of the world? When is he saying this? Psalm 2 doesn't tell us. Psalm 2 doesn't tell us, neither does Matthew 3 or Mark 1 or Luke 3 or Acts 13 or Hebrews 1 or Hebrews 5. None of those passages tell us when the beginning is. Okay? But is Jesus Christ very capable of looking back? Sure. I think he does so all the time. He does so when he talks about how Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He does so when he talks about I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. There's a lot of times that Jesus thinks back to things that you and I can't think back to in our human memory. All right. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so there is a moment that is very precious to God the Son and very precious to God the Father. And when that begetting occurs, that day is today. And it's the very first today there ever was. There was never a today before that day. So I call it the alpha moment in the alpha to omega plan of God. Today I have begotten me. Ask of me. Ask of me. And I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth as your possession. So there is a plan the Father has put forth and the Son is in agreement with that plan. And that plan is the whole earth, all of humanity. Not just the Abrahamic land grant, not just Israel, not just the son of David on the throne of David, but the son of man over all mankind. The ends of the earth is your possession. All right? So 
even though we've seen already a, a millennial context, there is actually a promise long before that that was so much bigger than the millennium. So much bigger than just simply the throne of David over the Jewish people with land boundaries from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. All right? Millennial Israel will still be finite on this earth. But the promise of the Father to the Son was not a finite land grant. It is the very nations themselves that he starts with the Jewish people on the throne of David, but he eventually receives all of humanity. The Gentiles is your inheritance. The word nations there in Psalm 2.8 could be Gentiles as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth is your possession, not the boundaries of the Nile River and the Euphrates River. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. During that millennial rule, when the kings are plotting and scheming and rebelling and grinding their teeth against his sovereignty, he will rule, but he rules with a rod of iron. It's not a pleasant reign. It is not a happy reign. The millennium is not uh, joy for Christ in reigning over loving uh, subjects. He rules with a rod of iron shattering them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. See, a human king isn't worthy of worship. He's worthy of subjection, but not worship. This is God himself as the king. Proof of the deity of Christ. Pharisees knew this too, by the way. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so the warning that's then given to end the millennial rebellion because the the fullness of time won't won't have any of that. All right. So today I have begotten you. Psalm 2-7 doesn't tell us what day that is. Although I think in the context we can get a clue that it's before the foundation of the earth. The, th- the New Testament allusions and quotations, they don't help us out either. Matthew uh, 3.17. And by the way, we're going to have a PowerPoint class coming up in March, but let me give you a clue. Notice I use uh, semicolons in between Scripture references. All right. Here, though, I did not use semicolons. I used parallel lines. And that's my little reminder to myself that they are parallel text. And if I don't feel like reading all three of them, I don't have to read all three of them. <laughs> because Mark 1.11 and Luke 3.22 say exactly the same thing in so many words as Matthew 3.17. And I will frequently use those in my gospel uh, verse lists particularly the synoptic gospels all right matthew mark and luke matthew 317 river jordan jesus comes to be baptized john the baptist says wait a minute because <laughs> what's he been doing all this time john the baptizer has been baptizing preaching repentance saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand repent confess your sins prepare for the coming king. Then here comes the coming king, the one guy on the planet that needs to repent of nothing. He is sinless. He is perfect. He requires no repentance. 
What does he need to do to, to baptize his own repentance, confess his own sins, prepare himself for himself? No. So John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, said to him, permitted at this time, in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting upon him. There's a full trinity here, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. And a voice out of the heavens said, God the Father speaking, quoting himself from Psalm 2, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son in in whom I am well pleased. So we have an allusion to uh, Psalm 2-7. Okay. Repeated in Mark 1.11, repeated in Luke 3.22, all three of those Gospels recording this event at the baptism of Jesus Christ, at the public beginning of his ministry, when he is anointed as a prophet, priest, and king, when he is publicly identified before men and angels alike, the, the audible voice of God the Father himself saying, this is my beloved son. All right. Allusion to Psalm 2.7 the begotten one, the son, who is worthy of homage, who is worthy of worship, who must be worshipped, or uh, you will not enter the uh, new heavens and the new earth. Now, we do have three New Testament quotations. Those are even sharper than the allusions. Uh, Acts 13.33 And uh, here's the uh, ministry of Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And uh, talking to Jewish people and God-fearing Gentiles in verse 22. Brethren, son of Abraham's family, those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. And so he gives a little bit of a walkthrough in the life of Christ and, and um, some background. And the Jewish people are going to be familiar with this anyway. So um, those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. <laughs> if they would have known the scriptures, they wouldn't have done it. Right. But not knowing the scriptures... They did what the Scripture said they were going to do. And, they, and they, though they found no grounds for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross, laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. All right. And, of course, we taught the difference between the Great Commission and the Great Cognition, the difference between make disciples and you are my witnesses. There's a difference between Matthew 28 and Luke 24. It's not the same message. But the apostles are the witnesses. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Now he's citing Psalm 2, 
But he's not saying that it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the the, the day of the beginning, because it's not. And he doesn't say that it is. Although you can point to commentaries that seem to think so. All right, as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, he no longer returned to decay. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So there's a Isaiah citation there. And then he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. Psalm 16, actually, if he remembered it. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. So take a look at your Davidic Psalms and ask yourself, when the Holy Spirit put this in the Scriptures, was he talking about David the person or the greater son of David? Was he talking about Messiah through David? David's the type. Christ is the fulfillment. And uh, since in the the genius of Paul's preaching here, (laughs) he said, David's dead and he's still dead. His body decayed. We still have his tomb to this day. So uh, in what sense then was the Holy Spirit talking about my Holy One will not undergo decay? It's not David the person, but the son of David, the fulfillment of David in Christ. All right, well, there's our use of Psalm 2. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's a direct quotation from Psalm 2, but it doesn't help us in trying to fix when that day was. Was it the day that he raised? Was it the day he was baptized? Was it the day that he was born? Was it the day, and, and even, was it in David's day? When was it? Well, this passage doesn't help us. Hebrews 1.5 and Hebrews 5.5, 5, they don't help us either. But we can look at them. Hebrews 1.5. Okay. And clearly there's a significance here. And in the Hebrews, I think it's a huge significance in the fact that when God is mocking, when God is rebuking the angels, he uses Psalm 2 to do it. Of course, Christ is so much greater than than any angel that that ever flew, okay? Um, Verse 3 says he is the radiance. Let me back up. God, that's the Father, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, Jewish fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. So the relationship of the Father to the Son is paramount. Whom he appointed heir of all things. God the Son is the heir of all things. Through whom also he made the ages. He made, or the world if you like that, but I prefer ages, the Ionios, the, the ages, plural. And he, God the Son, is the exact radiance of his glory. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. All right? Particularly since the Father is invisible. If you've seen the visible Son as he walked this earth, you've seen the Father. He is the radiance of his glory. The exact representation of his nature. You know, when you look up at the, at the Son, are you looking at the Son? Do you see the Son? Or do you see the light that has come to the earth from the Son? All right? So do you want to see the Father? Or do you want to see the radiance that has come to this earth from the Father? All right. He upholds all things by the word of his power. 
He keeps this world together. It's not up to us to save the planet from global warming or anything else. Jesus Christ maintains the creation that he put in place. And when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much better than the angels, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say? All right, to which of the angels did he ever say? And there's a tone here that expresses the, the mocking, the scorn, especially that rascal that said, I will, I will, I will, I will. Not to him and not to anybody else. A third of the angels followed after him. Which one of these angels did the father ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so we have a context for Psalm 2-7, as it's quoted here in, he, in uh, Hebrews 1-5, that precedes humanity, that actually finds an, a, a, a sense or a scope within the, the realm of the angelic stewardship. Was there ever an angel that the Father said, you are my son, I'm well pleased? You are my son, today I have begotten thee? There was none. Because when he created the angels, none of them were in the image of God. None of them he, he, were not made in the image of the God-man. In hypostatic union, it was the God-man that created all those angels. And again, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And even though the highest of all the angels, we've studied that the highest of all the angels are called B'nai Elohim, sons of Elohim, sons of God. B'nai Elohim, B'nai El, different terms as sons of God. The sons of God came into the daughters of men and produce Nephilim and whatever, there is a classification of angels that are called sons of God. But none of them are begotten sons of God. And there is one and only one begotten. There is one and only one beloved. There is one and only one, uh, today I have begotten thee. Sit at my right hand. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And so again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, firstborn, how is he in effect the firstborn? This is a very literal way that he is the firstborn. All right. In fact, I need to make sure I add that verse to a later point. Hebrews 1. All right. I'm going to jot that down. All right. Now, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. See, he's the son that's worthy of worship. That also is a Psalm 2 reference. Do homage to the son. Worship the son, lest he become angry. Angels alike are subjects of that Psalm 2 imperative. All right. And then, yeah, to which of the angels has he ever said? And to which of the angels has he ever said? You get down to verse 13. To which of the angels has he ever said? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. No angel is entitled to sit at the right hand of God the Father, only Jesus Christ. Satan himself, you know, didn't like his seat. He said, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will take my seat in the recesses of the north. I believe he was lusting after that very same seat. I believe the recesses of the north is the Father's right hand, and that gets into the directional thing of how do you find east in heaven. <laughs> All right north and south and east and west, and what direction does God face when he's sitting down? What direction do we face when we approach the Holy of Holies? All right. But to which of the angels? You'll notice, what are the angels? They're winds. His ministers are flames of fire. 
But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he's a son and he's a God and he's promised an eternal throne. You have loved the, the, the righteous scepters, the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Why does he have companions? If he's so unique, how does he possibly even have companions? But he does. Why is it that wisdom takes his delight in the sons of men? that we'll see at the conclusion of this passage in Proverbs 8, 31. All right, well, if I'm not careful, I'm going to teach Hebrews 1 this morning. Hebrews 5, 5. He, uh, Jesus is greater than all the angels. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than all the high priests that have ever been. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided. Thank you, Lord. Since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God even as Aaron was. So every priest that's ever been called by God, but he himself is a sinner, and that's a good thing because the sinner then knows how to be compassionate and relate and so forth. Christ will relate in a different way, not by being himself a sinner, but by being made to be a sinner on our behalf, to be made to be sin on our behalf. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, and maybe Barnabas forgot where it was. Today we call it Psalm 110, okay? But you know, in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now the author of Hebrews here, or the Holy Spirit through the author of Hebrews, is linking Psalm 2 with Psalm 110. And so we ask ourselves there too, when did this happen? When was he appointed with this with this uh, priesthood? When was he appointed with this? Uh, when was he begotten? And were they linked? I think they were linked. All right. But then in the days of his flesh, oh, that's something different. This now takes us forward to the time that he actually had a human body and walked this earth. What we call the incarnation. Okay. That comes from the Latin, but, you know, uh, like carnal. Any the, the, the days of his flesh or is his incarnation when he walked the earth in his body. But his uh, his begottenness would preceded that, and his appointment as a as a priest preceded that. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud voice, uh, with loud crying, and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Notice, able to save him from death, but not willing to save him from death. Is it possible for this cup to pass me by? Not my will, but thine be done. He's able to prevent Jesus from going to the cross, but he chooses not to. Because the consequences of Christ not going to the cross are unthinkable. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. See, all those other high priests, they learn just by being sinners themselves how much they need God. 
Jesus is not a sinner, but he learns through undeserved suffering what it is that he's atoning for, what it is that he's redeeming. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. All right. So it's necessary. Absolutely necessary. Part of the have-tos that Jesus submitted to. All right. Anyway, between the allusions and the quotations, we don't have explicitly fixed when the beginning day was. When was the beginning day? I think we got clues. I think we've got glimmers since we see Psalm 2 linked to Psalm 110 being appointed and designated as a high priest. I think that's a clue. That's a glimmer. Or we have the days of his flesh being spoken of as something after the beginning. I think that's a clue. That's a glimmer. But we don't have a specific, explicit statement until you get to Proverbs 8. When we know that the beginning of the humanity of Christ was before the foundation of the heavens and the earth. Then we have the day specifically spelled out. So I'm going to go back to Proverbs 8, but on my way, I'm going to stop at Psalm 89. And we'll, we'll find one other passage where we have this link in a sonship application. A principle of sonship that's displayed by David slash Jesus in Psalm 89. A principle of sonship. Verses 26 and 27 of Psalm 89. Hmm. Well, who are we talking about here? Are we talking about David or are we talking about David? <laughs> We're talking about historical David or the greater son of David? Is this simply talking about the type but not the anti-type, the fulfillment? Who is this in view? He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever. My covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. Now if I back up a little bit, notice, what is the context for this? This is heaven and earth being called to bear witness. The heavens will praise your wonders in verse 5. Oh, there's so much here. Psalm 89, uh, verse 1, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever to all generations. I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth to all generations. Is that just poetry, hyperbole, exaggeration? Or is there a finite number of generations from generation one to generation last? Okay, from the alpha generation to the omega generation. Is there indeed a final generation? Yes, it's the thousandth generation of the fullness of times. Is there a first generation? Yes, there is a first generation. And that's Adam and Eve, all right? Angels aren't organized into generations. Um, but to all generations, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen one. Notice? In Isaiah, we were talking about chosen one and chosen ones. Uh, my chosen one, I have sworn to David, my servant. 
Now, is this the, the, the shepherd that killed Goliath, or is it speaking through him and speaking of the much greater son of David, eschatologically? I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Really, it's both. It's David and his seed. Just like in the Abrahamic covenant, it's to Abraham and to his seed. Capital S, Jesus Christ. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. Here's the divine council of angels before there were ever any men formed. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty or the sons of God is like Yahweh? To which of the angels did he say, Today I have begotten thee? None. A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is like you? O mighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea when its waves rise. You still them. You yourself crushed Rahab. That's not the Jericho harlot. That's Satan. Okay? The, the, the poetic name for the dragon is Rahab. Like one who is slain, you scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. This boastful I am speaker who thought he could be like the most high God. Who is comparable to you? Not, not Rahab, not Satan, not Hillel ben Shachar. Jesus and Jesus alone. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. We'll talk about this. The, the throne versus the footstool. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon. Shout for joy your name. Again, how do we fix north and south in the uh, heavenly geography? No, it's not a geo. Geo is earth. In the heavenly, in the urinography of, of earth, of, of heaven. Okay. You have a strong arm. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. When we talk about the right hand of God who creates the heavens and the earth, well, who sits at the right hand? Who is the right hand? Jesus is the right hand of God. He is the mighty arm. That's why Satan wants to sit in the recesses of the north. He wants to be the right arm. He wants to be the mighty hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Again, more titles for Jesus Christ. Grace and truth are in Jesus Christ. Law came through Moses. Grace and truth are realized by Jesus Christ. All right. Anyway, Psalm 89 is, is a powerful, powerful psalm. It, it rebukes the angels. It speaks to the eternal promises. Jesus is the chosen one. He is the mighty one. He is uh, the one chosen from the people. Typologically, it's David. A thousand years before, it's Jesus Christ. But I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. In other words, David is selected to be the forefather of the humanity of uh, Jesus Christ. So I will establish his descendants forever. Verse 29. In Psalm 89, 29 is probably the biggest issue here because it's his descendants. And some of David's sons are going to be faithless, but none of Jesus' sons will ever be. And there we'll have to talk about those things too. That God the Son has sons in the fullness of time. That he reigns as the everlasting father in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? All right. So there's Psalm 2 and all the New Testament quotations as well as some uh, additional concepts here from Psalm 89.
probably should have given that its own point. Point B, in the beginning was the Logos. When we come back next week, we will uh, be in John chapter 1. And we will see in the beginning was the Logos. And we'll see the Apostle John's theological development of Proverbs 8. It is the theological unfolding of from the beginning was wisdom acquired, consecrated, and birthed. Solomon says, from the beginning was wisdom acquired, consecrated, and birthed. John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And so we're going to view John chapter 1 as a theological development of Proverbs chapter 8. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for this day. Ask for your faithfulness and blessing to open our eyes and open them wide, Father. There are some large themes that come out in, in these kinds of classes. Give us the capacity to, uh, to learn what it is you're teaching us. Help us to learn, Father, that before Abraham was born, I am. That the uh, humanity of Christ preceded the body, the flesh, the pregnant virgin. That the humanity of Christ is so much older than uh, a, a manger in Bethlehem. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.